I am Citizen 44. Oh my god, I am so excited. I, I think I'm going to cry. I have to tell you, Gabby has made me manager of Paris Green. Oh, I can't even tell you. I, I'm waving my hand in front of my face to cool myself down. Oh. Do you know what First Friday is here in Ashland, Oregon? All the galleries open up. Everybody's partying. People are drinking wine. They're eating cheese and crackers. They're just having a good time. That is what Paris is all about. So now we are jumping on the first Friday bandwagon and I've earned myself manager of Paris Green. I'm so excited. Please come in first Friday in May, 77 Oak Street, Ashland, Oregon, right downtown. Check us out on Facebook too. See you then. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 40. On today's show, we have Annie Hoy. Annie Hoy works at the Co-op. Yep, the Ashland Food Cooperative here in Ashland, Oregon. It's a very busy little grocery store, let me tell you. I go there to get great food, see friends, get a hug, and uh, actually it's a super fun experience. And Uh, As you'll find out, uh, people go to the co-op for more than just uh, grocery shopping. It's been a fascinating recent seven days. I have been on a bit of a health kick, if you will. In the past seven days, I have given up caffeine, sugar, alcohol. I mean, before I was doing the vegan thing. Yeah, sugar, alcohol, caffeine, and uh, marijuana. Yeah, that's right. I haven't smoked weed in a week, and uh, this proves that it is certainly not addictive. I think I proved in 2016 that marijuana was not addictive when I was in Thailand for seven months and consumed zero marijuana. So I'm feeling a little strange from all this. I actually had to uh, go get something because of my uh, central nervous system adjustment. It was recommended to me that I get this product called GABA, G-A-B-A. And this is something that uh, would calm my nerves a bit. Because I've given up so many things at one time, it's been a bit of, uh, uh, I guess you could say, it's wreaked havoc on my central nervous system. But uh, this GABA uh, seems to calm me down and uh, bring my central nervous system back to uh, normal. So I take a couple of these pills a couple times a day and I can't imagine it'll take very long for my body to adjust to uh, all the changes that I've made. But I feel good. I could see pounds dropping off. And uh, the goal is to kind of do a little bit of a cleanse. I want to be thin. I want to be healthy. I want to get down to like 145, which is, uh, I think my goal weight should be between like 145 and 150, somewhere in that area. And I I think that's going to take me a few months. But... uh, I'm eating tons of vegetables. I bought myself a new rice cooker the other day with a steamer. And I'll tell you what, man, I've been eating white rice for I don't know how long. And frankly, what a waste of time. I mean, it has zero nutritional value and it tastes like nothing, of course, because it's more of a support mechanism for other food. But brown rice is delicious. Why didn't someone convince me a long time ago that I should be eating brown rice? So brown rice and steaming cauliflower and asparagus and spinach and mixing that all together and oh, delicioso. So that's what's been going on. A lot of that, but I feel great and I think I look uh, a little bit better. I do a little bit of exercise, not much, some walking and some push-ups, but I think the push-ups themselves actually were creating a problem because as you may know, uh, I have another hernia. And that hernia is right above my belly button. It's called an umbilical hernia. And I went and saw the surgeon last Monday, and uh, he's going to try and word his report to the insurance company in a way that will hopefully encourage them to finally fix these now three hernias I have. 
But since I've changed my eating habits, none of these three hernias have bothered me. So there's something to a healthy diet and uh, what you put in your body definitely makes a difference on how your body responds and just the overall stuff happening. Another very strange thing that actually was the strange thing that kicked off the whole idea of all this giving things up was my friend David Gelfand had a 50th birthday party last week. David and I had not talked for a while really too much. He's the guy I told you about in the beginning, maybe even show number one. I had asked him if he would be interested in helping me out with some show theme music because he is a monster musician plays bass, guitar, electronic mixing, and all this other stuff. And he said, yeah, dude, I'll totally do this for you. I said, hey, man, I want to make a show uh, tomorrow. So it was the next day I wanted to upload show number one of uh, Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg. So he said, no problem, I'll go ahead and I'll make that for you. Well, the next day I I waited and no show. And uh, by the end of the day, I was getting kind of antsy because I wanted to launch this thing. You know, there's been so many times that I've said I was going to do things and didn't do them. And I was going to make sure that this was going to be the one time that when I said I was going to do something, I was going to do it. So I started making the show. And uh, again, I was waiting for David's call. Uh, I sent him a text. I said, hey, man, I'm making the show. You got some music for me. I don't think I heard back from him. So I went ahead and started finding uh, music on my own from uh, FMA, which is the Free Music Archive fantastic website. Tons of music that you can use uh, uh, licensing free. You can use it. You don't even need to give credit. There's tons of music you can just use at will, which I I did experiment uh, with a few things before I landed on uh, what I'm using now. So needless to say, I let David know, hey man, you know, you didn't come through. So I went ahead and uh, found music on my own. Well, uh, David had a 50th birthday party uh, last weekend. I guess that would have been on Saturday. So I went to the party with my friend Brandon. Both of us, all three of us actually have been friends since uh, almost day one that I moved here. And uh, it was great. It was tons of people there that I had not seen in a long time. And about, I don't know, maybe a half hour, 45 minutes into the party, David decided to uh, offer me a dose, if you will of uh, liquid LSD. And uh, I took it. I haven't done this since maybe Burning Man of 2006. No psychedelics, no psychoactive properties in my body other than marijuana. Anyway, so I did that. And then somebody offered me, maybe it was him, I don't remember now, uh, some mushrooms. So I did that all at the same time. Big dab of LSD, liquid uh, lysergic acid, and uh, a bit of mushrooms, delicious, chewy mushrooms. Well, I started getting kind of high and uh, started walking home. And I think this was about maybe one or two o'clock in the morning. I don't remember walking home. I do remember the feeling of having a fantastic walk home. And then I came home and somehow I was able to go to bed and I went to sleep. I don't know what happened between the time that I came home and going to sleep But I woke up the next morning, and I was still, by the way, uh, super high. Not like tripping, visually tripping, just high. So I tripped all the next day, and I had to work. I could uh, function quite normally, but I was still having a real uh, crunchy experience, a little frying in the head kind of thing. I actually took Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception with me to work, which is uh, the book that he wrote on mescaline, and uh, read it while frying, which was a fascinating experience. And I did come across some really fantastic information on page, I think, between 74 and 75 about how we are being educated too much in an auditory and language-based way, which is part of why we are not learning a lot of the things we need to learn fascinating information, a wonderful book. I still haven't finished it. But anyway, I sat downstairs just buzzing away all day. And this uh, fascinating woman walked into the store and had this necklace on with this badge that had two triangles on it. And I've been getting an eye full of triangles and threes. Even my hernias, 
That umbilical hernia and the two inguinal hernias, if you draw lines between them, they make a triangle. So a lot of uh, symbolic awareness around this number three and triangle thing happening with me. And speaking of the hernia thing, I feel pretty strongly that I'm going to get all of these repaired at one time. Although I was turned down last year just before going to Thailand on my inguinal hernias, I received some paperwork from uh, Oregon Health Plan about three days ago that reinstated my medical benefits. Now, it didn't say anything about whether or not they were going to approve this procedure or not. I just have this inkling now that because of all signs just seem to be pointing in the direction that I'm going to finally be able to get these taken care of. And I'm hoping, crossing my fingers, toes, eyes, and I hope you are doing the same, that this is going to happen before I potentially go to Thailand again this coming November. I had breakfast this morning, actually, with uh, my friend Eric Benetti and uh, Mr. Rich Reese over at Ruby's, and uh, we talked about the three of us going to Thailand together. And I hope this happens. That'd be really fantastic. You know, I don't have much in the way of money right now, but somehow, as you know, Mark gets what he wants. It used to really drive my ex-wife Valerie crazy that not only would I always get what I want, I would almost always beat her at Uno. So I'm hoping that I do again get to go with uh, Eric and Rich. If not, maybe Rich is going to be, I think, in Ireland at the time and try and make his way over to Thailand at some point while Eric and I are there, which would be right after the 7th of November. And the reason I'm waiting till after the 7th of November is the 7th of November is my daughter Zoe's 18th birthday. And I told her emphatically that I will be here, no doubt, uh, to celebrate with her in some fantastic way, I hope. So I did some serious tripping in the past week. I've given up caffeine, sugar, alcohol, weed. And uh, I think the sugar thing is probably one of the biggest things. Now, uh, aside from my tripping that seemed to trigger this whole exercise of elimination, I went in and got a blood test because my stomach was cramping like crazy. And coincidentally, this is when I discovered my umbilical hernia, which uh, Dr. Heisterman, such a cool cat, by the way, folks in town here in Ashland, uh, Dr. Matthew Heisterman, hopefully the non-Jewish Jewish guy, when people come in who are Jewish, there's an assumption that he's Jewish. So a lot of them will speak Yiddish to him and he he pretends that he knows what they're saying. And I caught him and I asked him about that. I said, dude, you know, you got sort of a Jewish name. I said, are you fake Jewing with uh, your patients? And he admitted that he does. He does fake, uh, fake be Jewish with his patients. You know, probably he would be Jewish, but because it's Heisterman, tall, curly haired, good looking cat, super nice young man. And, uh, so it's funny that he actually copped to it with me. But he pushed in my umbilical hernia for me. He just stuck his finger in there in the hole and kind of closed it up. And I think it's about maybe an inch in diameter that my business can squeeze through there. So, so it hasn't bothered me. And uh, I'm super grateful about that. And again, the two inguinal hernias, those haven't bothered me either. We're on show number 40. I'm glad to be here with you. I'm glad to feel healthier, thinner, and uh, let's get on with the show. So Annie Hoy, what is your exact position with Ashland Food Cooperative? The current incarnation is called marketing manager. Marketing manager. What does that mean? Anything from the front door out into the community and more recently, more of the internal brand. Mistress of everything at the co-op. Okay. I see you bopping around and talking to people, and you've been there for how many years? 23. Holy moly. I know. That's pretty good. Yeah. Who owns the co-op besides the people that own the co-op that are customers and pay to be owners of the co-op? That's it. 
That's it. There's no private ownership of any kind. We have 10,000 owners. Wow. By the way, I'm not one of them. And I'll tell you why. Okay. Only for one reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, Groucho Mark said, I, I don't want to be a part of any club that wants me to be in their club. <laughs> Did you ever hear that? Yes. Okay. It's my excuse for not joining anything. Religion, nothing. I want you to think that I'm just a loser because I have shopped in there for 15 years. I know you have. Yeah. And that's the great thing about co-ops is that you don't have to be an owner. Everybody's welcome. Right. Uh, I love your operation. Literally, I can sprint and be in the store in about 90 seconds. I just experienced that. Yeah, and I have gravity kind of going with me. And I used to live on Hargadine and had gravity going with me where I could get some serious speed going, but I don't, I don't really run anymore. So you're just close enough where I can stroll over there <laughs> in about five minutes. And when you get there, you never know what the scene is going to be. No, but it's always a great scene. Every time. It's a hugathon. I always catch up with people that I love and know in town. And it is kind of that place where people maybe not necessarily even go to shop. They go to catch up. We hear that all the time on surveys from uh, customers. It's pretty sweet. It's either if I feel depressed, I can go there and I feel uplifted. Or if I feel overwhelmed, I can go there and I see my friends and I get grounded. No matter what, you can have a good experience there. And you're likely to see something really wacky. And free hugs. Yeah. But I will give you a free hug anytime I see you in the store, if that's what you need. Yes. Where's your shirt? Free hug shirt. We're fantasizing about that. I think it's a good idea. I'd like to see some kind of a viral campaign where people just start putting them on. And I just wrote something today about what we need is a big group hug. Yeah. Let everybody know that we care and, and we're here and... My hugs are therapeutic. Yeah, I I feel the same. As a matter of fact, I get really rave reviews on my hugs. Me too. Maybe we should have a hugging contest at the store. Has that ever been brought up? No, not a contest. A contest. I'll bring that back to the marketing department to see what we can do. And the winner gets a gift certificate for the store to keep it all in the store. How long have you been in this community? Since 1986. Wow, I don't know a lot of people other than people that were born here that have been here before the 90s. And where did you come from? I came from Eugene, and I came to Eugene from El Paso, Texas. Ah, what drove you out of Texas? Oh, so many things. What's what's the main thing that drove you out of Texas? Uh, I don't know whether I was driven out as much as I was attracted to. So Mm. uh, my college academic advisor was a native Oregonian. And instead of doing academic advising, she would tell me a lot about Oregon. And I could not wait to get to Oregon. How old were you at this time? I met her when I was 17. I moved when I was 19. So she was kind of your inspiration. Mm -hmm. And how did she present Oregon to you? And why did she The land Oregon? of green. Oh, yeah. On many levels, yeah. She uh, grew up in the Willamette Valley, and she talked about the fields of green. Mm. And El Paso, Texas, as you may or may not know, is mostly brown sand and mountain. So the only green that's there is when you water your yard every day, you'll get some grass. If you go to Mexico, you could get some grass, too, but that's a different story. Right. Not good either, by the way. Well, when you're 16, it was pretty good. You had to know the right taxi driver. Ah, interesting. Because I had a taxi driver take me to a place, promised me, this is the goods. I swear to God, it is green. (laughs) It was the same brown, shitty stems and seeds stuff. Well, maybe we were less discerning back then. I don't know. (laughs) So she was my biology teacher, too. And she was my favorite teacher, so... She just would tell me stories about growing up in the Willamette Valley and how great it was. And and I had to get out of Texas because, well, when I was tired of the desert and I didn't like the political scene, I, I did not fit in there. I was not born to be a Texan for my whole life. I was born to be someplace where there were more people that thought like I did. I was a misfit. Your parents are from Texas or no? No, uh, my father was from a little tiny town in Arkansas, Parkdale, Arkansas, uh, on a bayou. And my mom came from New Orleans. She was born and raised in New Orleans. And my dad had 13 siblings. 
And he and his brothers, well, one of his brothers had moved to El Paso and started a little grocery store. And my dad and his other brothers literally hopped on trains to get to California to try to find work because there wasn't any work in Arkansas. And so they didn't find work in California, so they came back to El Paso and started working with their brother in his little corner grocery store. And my grandmother had married a riverboat gambler kind of dude, and he left her with two small children. And my grandmother had a lot of sisters in New Orleans, because that's where she was raised. And so they had moved to El Paso as well. And so she followed with my mom in tow, her sisters to El Paso, and they hooked up through mutual friends. What year did you enter the scene? I entered the scene in 53, but I had two brothers, one 20 years older than me and one 15 years older than me. Are they still around? No. Everybody's gone. I met. Your parents are gone too? Mm -hmm. So how did you deal with uh, being a unique thinking being in a place where you didn't quite fit in? I fit in with horses. And so I always had a horse from age five through college, through my first couple years of college. And I rode my horse every single day. Hmm. Did you have friends that were human? I did have friends that were human. I lived in a neighborhood that uh, had a lot of kids in it. So three girls next door, two girls on the other side, a family with two girls and a boy across the street, three more girls also across the street. And so it was so like had we had a so. whole kid thing going on, mostly girls. And we spent every afternoon after school doing something. And we were right in a, a fairly new housing neighborhood. And it was right on the edge of the desert. Behind my house was a drop-off. It was like a little caliche cliff and then a drop-off. And nothing was down there. And then there was the freeway. We had a cul-de-sac and again, just desert out there. So we basically ran wild in the desert. And then we knew what time to come home for dinner. So if I wasn't riding my horse in the desert, I was playing in the desert. Were you on a horse with no name? My horses had names. You know what I was saying. I know. <laughs> well, who were your favorite horses? All of them. And what were their names? <laughs> Abster. Abster? <laughs> the Abe with the stir on it? Yeah. That was my first horse. The stable where I rode, you rented a horse yeah. long term. So, so you, you didn't own the horse. You didn't own the horse. Yeah, the yeah. first horse I owned was a horse named Pumpkin. And she was this beautiful orange color with a kind of a creamy color mane and tail. But she was kind of crazy. And she was really made to be a barrel racer, like a professional barrel racer. So What's she, a barrel racer? You know, that rodeo sport where you go around the three barrels. Oh, yeah, Like yeah, in yeah. a cloverleaf. Yeah. So we gave her back. Someone had given her to me. So then I went to horse camp, I think, eighth, ninth, tenth. Huh? So five years. I went to horse camp every summer, three weeks. And half the day you rode horses the other half of the day you did arts and crafts and archery and rifle target practice so the last horse that i rode there had a foal and i bought the foal when mm. she was a yearling and her name was wisa so what were your parents thinking because you felt different than obviously your community on some level were your parents forward-thinking people kind of breaking the mold, a generational mold. I think they recognized that it was a generational mold because, you know, my mom would always say, oh, I wish you had been born closer to your brothers. Back then, it was so much easier. You know, my dad did not like my political views and didn't want me to get involved with marches or anything like that. You know, I graduated from high school in 1970. There was a lot going on. Yeah. And were you active? I was in an acceptable way in that in eighth grade, I joined the Episcopal Church instead of the Methodist Church where we had been going because mm -hmm. they just had a really great youth program, better than the Methodist Church. So because I played guitar also, in eighth grade, we had a folk choir at the Episcopal Church, and he got called to go to Vietnam. Mm. And so he taught me all of the songs, and then I became the guitar player for the 
folk choir. Oh. And so eighth grade through high school, I played guitar to accompany the youth choir, the folk choir. And we traveled all over the Southwest performing in churches. And one summer we went to several different churches on the Navajo reservation to do our little folk songs. Right. Did he make it back? I don't think so. No, a lot of my friends didn't make it back. Boys I rode with at the stables, older brothers of my friends. The worst time for being connected to people like that. It definitely shaped my views about war and conflict. And how did you uh, resolve this with your father? I mean, obviously, you guys thought differently, but you had to coexist. And did he just kind of end up letting you be, essentially? Well, that's why I moved to Oregon, because then I didn't have to deal with that anymore. I was with people who were more like-minded, and I came back once or twice a year. How'd you do in school with children who were brought up probably more on the conservative side? Well, I went to a very small, private, all-girls school from first grade through 12th grade. Wow, that's actually really fantastic. Was it good? Because I think it's what we should all be doing is separating the herd from genders because it's a mess when you put people together that are not emotionally mature enough to be together. So what a wonderful way to get an education without all that distraction and concentration with your people. Exactly. I never got the message that I was less than and it was okay for us to excel academically or to fully actualize all of our talents. No one put any boundaries on our learning. Yeah. So I feel that I was very lucky with that. And then the first college I went to was also an all-girls college. It was a two-year college in Columbia, Missouri. And the second semester of my sophomore year there, we admitted, I think it was eight guys, and started to, oh, to, make, bring, it to make it co-ed. And how did that work out? Well, I ended up marrying one of them. Really? And divorcing him before we had reached our second anniversary. The thing is, I had never had a, a boy in a class ever before. So, How did that affect your work? I was determined to get a higher grade than him, oh. no matter what. So, we so were, instead of being distracted and not doing well, you were actually empowered to do better. Yes. Interesting. So it created competition in the school. Yeah. Is the school still around? Yes, it is. Is it co-ed now? Yes, it is. And it's like a real... Like a regular school. Regular school, yeah. You were lucky. Yes, I I, mean, that you were there as long as you were without the other influence. Mm -hmm. How do you think it maybe molded you or shaped your life differently than maybe children today who are stuck uh, with boys and girls together and have to deal with that whole element? I was always empowered to be my best self without anyone having any expectation of me being less than. Less than them or less than Yeah, there's anybody. no bullying. There's nothing no. unless it taken kind of the whole competitive edge out of education. Well, we all competed against each other to get the best grade. We supported each other. Right. Well, there's still schools like that. And I've actually been online and I've seen where these women are becoming super successful because that element is not introduced into their educational development, which mm -hmm. is super smart for boys, too. And yeah. I get the whole boys school thing. And I wonder who was the genius who decided to put us together. <laughs> Notice it's public and private, right? That's right. There's not a public, to my knowledge, I haven't thought about this in a long a time, public school a public just school a that's just specific? one gender, yeah. Well, I will look it up when we're done because I'll be interested to know, but I kind of doubt it. So your children were raised here? Yes. And how many children do you have? I have two daughters. How old are they now? 40 and 38. Wow. How are they doing? They're doing great. Do they live here? One lives here. One lives in Bellingham. Both of them have two children each. Are they both still married? Well, one is, has only been married once. One, she's on her second okay. marriage. But the extended family situation for them is very grown up. It's amazing. I have three sons-in-law. I love all of them. Well, you had a lot to do with that because you had to bring that to the table. If that wasn't for you, that never would have happened. Right, because I am no longer married to their father. I'm married to their stepfather. Right. And so we learned how to be grown up about, we didn't always do that well, but it is something that you can do. There are some broad guidelines, I guess, you know, be nice to each other, be tender, 
love no matter what, be open, you know, listen, listen with attention and try to work things out. There's always a middle ground. I've learned some skills along the way and every day is practice. Practice what you know. Sometimes you forget. And then every day I learn something new. So I don't think at 19, I could have been prepared for what happened to me then, as opposed to how I would deal with a situation at my tender young age of 65 to, you know, it's different. That 19-year-old is still inside of me, and I often express her, but I think at 19, I may have already known my older self and expressed part of that, as though time was running parallel. So you can go very easily between then and now and, and your future self. There is a group in town and all around the world that identify as social artists. And part of how we learn together includes that information download. And then in order to process it, we process it physically through movement. Mm -hmm. So during the course of a day or a week when we're together learning together, there will be that opportunity. You start your morning with song, and then you have a learning, a teaching and a learning, and then you have some movement, and then a break, and then come back and sing, and then the learning, and then the movement. So you have time to integrate the knowledge in your body as well as your brain. Well, that's neurotransmitting. Yeah. Well, doesn't that sound like a nice recipe for school? I think it would be. But it's nothing like that. It's literally the opposite of those things. So I can understand why you would gravitate towards what that end result would be, which would be a full experience, Mm -hmm. even a full body and emotional experience, which they don't get in school. I'm going to think about my first grade class. Okay, I know it was like a different kind of school. So the school I went to, Radford School for Girls in El Paso, Texas, was rich in visual things because it was a museum as well as a school. Hmm. They morphed into each other. Okay. Uh, the principal of the school, Lucinda de Lefwich Templin, was a cigar smoking, uh, looked a little bit like Eleanor Roosevelt with breasts that we thought she tucked into her belt, who smelled kind of funny and was very old fashioned. And she had collected artifacts from World War One, World War Two, Korean War, and then weird, eclectic, she had a Napoleonic collection that was amazing. She had Pancho Villa's death mask in her private quarters that you could only go through there if you were a senior. Uh, she had the world's tiniest Bible that had a magnifying glass. So all the hallways were filled with glass display cases and amazing Persian rugs. And we did a couple of recesses a day, and out in front of the school, and in the back of the school too, were collections of old artillery, like cannons and a tank. I mean, this is weird, right? (laughs) So we would go out and we would use the artillery guns, the we'd hang upside down from them. So they were like our jungle gym. Yeah. Or you could climb into the seat and you could pretend like you were shooting or, you know, and get inside the tank. How old and you, are you? I started first grade at five. Okay. So, so you're hanging on tanks at five. Five, six, seven, eight, yeah. nine, ten. Even in high school, we would go out and play on them. But this is the same school you attended the whole time, right? Yeah. How could you compare that to anything <laughs> that a child is going to now? You're in another world, dude. It's no relativity whatsoever. How could you even comment on the school system when you were in some fucking fantasy camp? At five, you were in a fantasy camp. Nothing remotely I was close. very lucky, okay? No, no, no. I'm saying it's fantastic, and it helped mold the you that has become. Versus if you were put in a traditional learning environment, I would imagine there's a mathematical equation that you could determine what are the chances that you could come out like you did now Put into a situation that was nothing like that. You had cool, but you don't know because you didn't go to that kind of school. <laughs> but I saw the schools that my children went to, and I see the schools that my grandkids are going to. And so I do have 
some knowledge of that way of learning. Sure. And it is different. Okay. How did you end up in that school? Was this, this was a private school, right? Yeah. So your parents had to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So whose idea was it to put you in a school that was maybe counterintuitive to the conservativeness of your parents? That's an interesting question because where our first house that I remember was literally kitty corner to a public school. And so all the kids in the neighborhood went to that school. But because I was a year younger than everybody, and that school didn't have a kindergarten, so I had to wait till six to go to first grade, the private school offered the opportunity to go to first grade at age five. Mm. And it was maybe three blocks from my house. And, you know, my dad had worked his way up from being the produce clerk at his brother's corner grocery store to being high in the corporate office of a small chain of grocery stores. And because of his humble beginnings, and now he was kind of a big deal, he felt that it was important for his child to have a better experience. He could afford a better experience. And because he always felt very insecure about his place in the world from that you know, dirt poor Arkansas boy to a corporate office that looked like something from the Mad Men set with the credenza and the bourbon in the back. And inside he wasn't that. And he desperately wanted to be that. And he didn't want people to look at our family and think dirt poor Arkansas boy. He wanted to feel equal to the people, at least look like we were equal to the people that made the big decisions like he was making. So he wanted to make sure that his daughter fit into that world. So private girls' school, you got to be a debutante, you got to have the good clothes. And Neiman Marcus as a label was like the status symbol. My mom, we'd go to Dallas once a year around school shopping time, and we'd go to Neiman Marcus, and she would have a little notebook, and she would draw out the designs of the clothes, because I'd try them on, and then she would make them for me. Cool, man. She would ask for the Neiman Marcus labels. She would say, oh, do you have any extra labels around? And, and she'd sell- put them on your clothes? Yes, so that when I undressed I in locker room for PE, it wouldn't be a homemade dress. People would think it they was a Neiman Marcus. Exactly. And they save a shit ton of money. Yeah. And your mom made clothes for you. I was hard to fit. <laughs> you were hard to fit? Okay. <laughs> I'm five feet tall and a little round, and everybody else was, you know, long and lanky, so. Yeah, well, this whole town is five feet tall and a little round. That's why I'm here. Your people are here. (laughs) So your older brothers, though, how did that work out for them? Because that's obviously a much earlier time, over a decade before you. What was their life like? I don't have any idea. My older brother got married at 19, so he was already gone and he was living in a different city and yeah. had a wife. He eventually moved back to El Paso and got involved in the car industry. So I don't really know anything about his experience. Except Did you have much relationship? No, not really. Because I mean, really. he was gone and that was it. No, we never had a very close relationship. My younger brother, older than me, we were a lot more simpatico. Mm-hmm. Because he got his driver's permit right around the time that I was born. So by the, you know, I have memories of, he liked fast cars, so I would sit on his lap and he would let me pretend to steer. So he must have been 16 or 17, I was two or three. But again, he went away in the army and... So you're pretty much by yourself most of the time. Yeah. How was that? It was fine because mostly I was by myself after school on a horse until dinner time and then in my room doing homework and yeah. How'd you do in high school? Okay. And this is the same school, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I've got to, I keep forgetting there's no, most people have a separation. Right. You go to elementary, you go to exactly. middle, and you go, no. We just, it was one continuum it just seems from so 12 to, to 12. To do that. And then there were forced relationships between classes. So once you were a senior, you had a relationship with a junior as your little sister, little sister, big sister, and with a freshman as an angel and a devil. So the senior was the angel and the freshman was the devil. So you only had your sophomore year really where 
you didn't have a formal relationship in some way. Right. So, And then we didn't have like a cafeteria. We had a dining room. And everybody sat at tables with a teacher or an administrator at the head of the table. And we were served food family style. And you were taught manners. And the big deal was that every student got to sit at the principal's table at least once mm. during the course of the year. And that was something you wanted to do, right? It was both, uh, yeah, I want to do that. And also extremely frightening because she would ask you, like, say all the names of the states or, uh-huh. or you know, some esoteric thing. So yeah. it was like, oh, you would like bone up on your geography so you could name all of the countries in Europe or, you know, stuff like that. you never like knew that. when you were going to sit there. So you right. always had to be prepared. Mm-hmm. And we had good food. You know, it was healthy food, prepped in a kitchen. Every Friday was enchiladas because the Catholic girls couldn't have meat, so we had cheese enchiladas, and, you know. It sounds really It was lovely, really an, an experience. Yeah, it's too bad there's not more of them around. Were there also boys' schools close by? Yes, yes, but we didn't really do any exchange with... There's no fraternizing? No, each high school had a thing where you might have an arranged date with someone that was in the... Did they have like kings and queens or something like that? Oh, like the prom thing? Like the prom thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, where you would represent your school at prom with one of their guys. Right. Yeah. Did you do that stuff? Yeah, but it didn't ever work out really well. Did you care about boys back then? Much? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Okay, I don't know. There were a lot of boys at the stable. Ah, the stable. See, that's where probably a lot of activity happened that was not happening elsewhere. That's right. Hmm, what happened at the stables? And where were the stables in relation to your home? Well, you could ride your horse all the way into town, but it was probably a 15-minute drive. I spent every afternoon after school until dinner time, so my mom would drop me off, and then she would make dinner and then pick me up, and then we'd have dinner. And all day Saturday, and... All day Sunday after church. And has your horse thing continued through your life? You're in kind of horsey country a little bit. I know, and it hasn't, but... Uh, do you know about Equimore Sanctuary? I do, and I'm going to take my granddaughter down there. Are you familiar with Green Horse or Riding no. Beyond? No. So that's Trish Borsma. What she does is therapeutic riding for women who are recovering from breast cancer. Oh. So she has two horses that are specially trained, and then they're... Uh, Because I don't know whether you know this, but the heart of a horse has a vibration of entrainment that is 60 feet. So the vibration of their heart is very similar to the vibration of a human heart. Mm. So when you get on a horse, your two hearts begin to resonate with each other. And so in this process of healing, the women actually lay on the horse's back and start to feel huh. that vibration. You should have Trish on your podcast. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Because the miracles go on. And it, it could be PTSD, it could be recovering from uh, the trauma of breast cancer, which is huge. Autistic kids, the sitting on the horse and the way that they move their body starts to rewire your brain and huh. your body together. So if you've had a traumatic brain injury, that kind of helps get you back into your humanness. Oh, interesting. I didn't know any of those things. How do you like working for the co-op? I have loved working at the co-op. You know, it's weird that my dad worked in grocery and... Weird versus appropriate? (laughs) I see what you're saying. Well, remember, too, that I also had a 15-year broadcaster career. Oh, I don't know before... anything about that. Oh, We didn't so, talk about that. No, well, you haven't asked why I moved to Ashland. Oh, I didn't know there was more. <laughs> I moved here for a job. Oh. I started the news department at Jefferson Public Radio when it was just KSOR one station. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty exciting. And what was your specific job with the station? To start a news department. Oh, Single-handedly. Gathered the news and delivered the news as well? And then recruited volunteers. And because it was on campus, we uh, recruited students. And there was a broadcasting program there. And I taught broadcast announcing and broadcast writing. And how long did you do that? I did that from 1986 to 1993. Why did you stop? Uh, We don't want to talk about that. Okay. So did you go straight (laughs) from that to the co-op? I had about five months 
in between. Well, not much. No, I, I was lucky. Yeah. Because when you're a journalist, journalists sit around at our journalist conferences. For us, it was the Associated Press Conference every year or the Radio Television News Directors Association Conference. And you, you know, talk about what's next for us. You know, what do you do after you're a journalist? Mm -hmm. And yeah, what do you do? Well, we all kind of discuss that. And it's like, well, you go into public relations. Because that's the flip side of journalism, right? Mm -hmm. So that way you have a little bit of a leg up as a public relations person because you know from experience what journalists want. So it's advantageous. Now, of course, the scariest part of that is that maybe the only public relations jobs that there are would be for an organization that you didn't exactly 100% believe in, like what if I was hired to be the public relations person for the Trojan nuclear plant? Or what if I was, during the Timber Wars, a public information officer for the Forest Service? So your fear was that your next thing would be something that you didn't believe in and that you were constrained in the way that you could promote it. So my job description and job title when I was hired at the co-op was public relations specialist because they didn't believe in marketing back then. And it's only till recently that marketing is a word that we can use in the co-op world. We've all been outreach coordinators or community outreach. Because of the structure of the company? Yes, because marketing seems so conventional. But marketing has an overlay of fake news, so to speak. Like, Maybe you bend the truth a little bit in order to get your message out there to make it more compelling. But if you're community outreach, that gives it a kind of a grounding in your community. We're trying to elevate what we do to be what it really is. And I mean, it's happening in co-ops all over the country. The outreach coordinator is being replaced with marketing, and we're actually talking about marketing openly and how to do it with the ethics that are behind us, our foundation of the co-op principles and values. We have a set of principles and values that are universal to all co-ops that we can all abide by, and that's where we come from. And that's how it works, meaning all co-ops essentially are run the same? Yes, all cooperative enterprises, regardless of the economic sector, have a common set of values and principles. So the Grange Co-op and... Road Credit Union, Ace Hardware. Oh, they are too? True Value. Oh, I didn't know they were co-ops. So those are purchasing co-ops. So our Ace Hardware store is a member of Ace Hardware Co-op, which is a purchasing co-op. So it's businesses that have joined together as a purchasing co-op to get their goods at this bulk rate. Just like we, Ashland Food Co-op, has joined with other food co-ops in the country and formed a secondary co-op, National Co-op Grocers, and we pool our buying power so that we can negotiate a better wholesale price and then offer better prices. It's hard to market that information because it's a little bit complicated, but it makes sense, right? When, When you pool your resources, you can do something better together than you can as individuals. Well, wow. Isn't that a plan for the planet? Well, yes. And that's kind of what our vision is, that eventually there's going to be a co-op in every economic sector, in every town, globally. And co-op development is the fastest growing in developing nations right now through things like the National Co-op Business Association, their Cooperative League of the USA does development work in developing nations and the formation of, in the economic sector, it's the formation of co-ops. So coffee co-ops or weaving co-ops or cotton co-ops or rice co-ops, whatever enterprise that that area needs. Wherever there's a problem, there's a co-op solution. It's easily translatable to any economic model. Do people know this? Well, in the co-op world, we know it. Well, I know, but... (laughs) Not taught in business schools. This is also really difficult to figure out where it fits in a college curriculum. Is it in the economics department? 
Is it in the business? So it's been a challenge to be able to get this business model out there. And traditionally, it's not taught in either economics or business. So it would make sense to me, since all co-ops are based on the same fundamental language and structure, regardless of what it is that you are offering to the public, why not have a co-op school that actually teaches how to be in a co-op and educate people so they can develop more co-ops? Why wait for a university to pick up on something they're probably never, ever going to do? One of the things that I have been able to do is like do a one presentation on what a co-op is to like a virtual enterprise. Mm -hmm. I haven't really cracked the junior achievement or the future business leaders of America because I haven't had the time in my job to or been given the go ahead or this is your goal kind of thing to go out and do this because I'm, you know, doing other things. But I do get to do a co-op 101 for every new employee. So we do two full days of training for every new employee. And I get an hour and a half for for that. So just think about what you just said. You get an hour and a half. That's like me trying to teach English to Thai children for three hours a week. It ain't going to happen. It's a beginning. We're really just at the beginning because co-ops have kind of been like the, you know, the hidden jewel and we're starting to try to, to come out. But if you think about this, that what are there, 8 billion people on the planet? Mm -hmm. There is more than a billion of those are co-op members. That's a lot. That's a high Globally. percentage. That's why we we have such a vibrant education program for the community, right? But it's mostly about food. It's not necessarily about cooperation. But they get a little of that. You know, one thing we could do to our education program is add something about what it means to be a cooperative and how you could start one. We're trying to work with Farm to School program. So Farm to School, my son-in-law is working for Farm to School now. And we host three camps every summer with them, and they come in and they they teach. And there's a little tiny nugget of cooperation in there. Mm-hmm. But we're trying to beef up that collaboration since they're already in the schools, can kind of ride their coattails yeah. in. It's a matter of really putting together a curriculum for that age group. And that has been our greatest challenge. We're not curriculum people. So we need someone who can write curriculum to come learn about cooperation so that you can help us co-create this curriculum. So you've been at the call for 23 years. I think there's something next for me. I want to be a highly paid, inspirational keynote speaker. Oh, okay. How's that? I think it's a fantastic (laughs) gift idea. I don't see why you can't make that happen. I think the highly paid part works, especially if you're delivering the motivation that people want and they're willing to pay for it. Yeah, and highly paid for me isn't really that much because I live very simply, but you know. Yeah. I would like to receive adequate remuneration for my skills of commanding an audience, teaching them something new, uplifting them, somehow making their day better or their life better because of one thing I told them. And and have you written any of these things down so you can be ready to tell them the things when you're done doing this thing so you can get on to the next thing and do those things? I'm practicing by being an MC. Oh, where are you an for, MC? I'm an MC last year and then also this year for our big co-op conference. Oh. And then we'll go from there. Okay. I'm really good at it. Well, you're on now. I mean, this is what you want to do, right? I mean, you got a <laughs> microphone in front of your face. Let's leverage this as an opportunity for both the three people that are listening to the show. and the one. Hello, person. three people. Yeah. And my mom. Say hi to my mom. Hi, mom. You're really great. You remind me of my mother-in-law. I loved her very much, and I just love the relationship that you have with your son, and it's just great to hear you. So you have the mic now, and uh, in some kind of closing remarks, if you will. The thing that I want people to understand, that we're all having an individual human experience. We are probably stardust, and... This is probably not our first human experience. And let's make the most of it with relation to our fellow 
travelers, love is at the base of everything. We are capable of things that in your wildest imagine you probably believe you cannot do, but you are completely capable of doing it. And as long as you are in service to others, that reciprocity will hold you up and build you up. And the more we can do that with each other, the better our human experience is going to be. If we can, as my mentor, Gene Houston, says, we need to be able to take that long stride across to the other. And that's probably the hardest thing we can do as humans, is to reach out to someone that might not agree with you, look like you, think like you, but you must reach out to them and them to you because we're all here for a reason and let's make the most of it instead of trying to tear it down. We are in a time of breakdown and breakthrough. We just got to hang on with that, knowing that, because the breakdown part's not going to be that fun. But the breakthrough is going to be worth the wait. And we're here now because we're meant to be part of it. We're born for this time right now. You got to get up every morning and realize this is our time. Right. Glad to be here with you. Glad you agreed to come. Annie, thank you so much. It was very informational. I think people will get something out of this. They'll certainly know more about the co-op. And by the way, for $10, not 100 which most of us do not have. And you only have to pay it once a quarter to keep it once going. Once a quarter? You pay 10 bucks. Yes. Every four months, you come up with 10 bucks, and you're an owner at the co-op. Yeah. Well, these four people are going to be owners, I'll tell you right now, Annie. <laughs> I, as a matter of fact, who told you about the Groucho Marx thing, mm-hmm. I will go in there with 10 bucks. I'll become an owner because I. You have them call me. I hope you'll do it when I'm like on, on duty. The floor, yeah. Well, I'm hardly ever on the floor, but they can call me over so that I can give you a special prize. There's a special price? A special gift. Oh, a special gift? I'll give you a special gift. You can do just that for in you. the store? <laughs> you can do that at the register? It's your store. I guess you can market it any way you want. I'm a married woman. Watch out now. Well, that's right. You are married. <laughs> Now, how long have you been married now? The second time? Uh, the third time. Oh. Um, since 1983. <gasps> that's when I got married. You've been married since 83? Oh, and you're still married? Well, that's a done deal. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Three times? Mm-hmm. Huh. Ah. Well, they say the third time's a charm, right? It worked for me. Clearly, it worked for you. All right, Annie, thank you so much. Much love to you. Appreciate it. Hugs and kisses. You too. Bye. Bye. Let's see if we recorded anything. <laughs> well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was great talking to Annie. She's really a cool lady. And uh, I'm going to go into the co-op here today and take her up on her offer of becoming an owner. Yep, that's right. I'm going to go in, give my $10, and I'm super curious to see what uh, this gift is she has for me. Speaking of gifts, I want to thank Doug Fergus. Today I received a beautiful gift, a second microphone, a second Rode Podcaster mic. So in uh, the coming weeks, you should hear an increase in quality in my voice when I have these conversations with my guests. So I'm, I'm super excited to get that going. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg podcast is a listener-supported presentation. Please visit Ahrensberg.com, and if you feel so inclined, click on the Donate button and uh, support my show. Thanks again for listening always. I appreciate it. It's an honor to do the show, and I'm here every week. We're four away from show number 44. I have a feeling I know who the show's going to be but I'm not going to tell you. All right, I'm going to tell you. It's going to be Gary Cout. Uh, Gary and I have gone back uh, several years. 
He's a local here in Ashland, Oregon. Been heavy into the entertainment industry. He produces uh, Apple commercials and uh, was a big part of producing a Netflix documentary series, an original series called Flint Town, which uh, I urge you to check out. It's not a happy show. I mean, you're talking about a community that has not had clean drinking water for a few years now, which is really another American embarrassment. It's terrible. So we're going to talk to Gary about all that. Okay, thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Paris Green, a curated collection of incredible objects from around the world. Paris is always a good idea. 77 Oak Street, Ashland, Oregon. Visit them online at Facebook. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. I am Citizen 44. Pretty good timing. Why? Because I just came out of the MRI machine sitting on a bench. Why I told that I would wait for him here. Oh, you're over at the hospital? Yeah. Oh, okay. How'd the test go? Oh, I have no idea. I won't know until the doctor... No, no, I don't mean the results. I mean just the whole idea of taking the, the MRI. He was really good. In the past, when I, I have to have an IV because they do a contrast, and they usually pull you out and then look for your vein and then shoot it into you, and then you go back in. But he had prepared me all beforehand, so he says he's finished. Oh, so that was good. Wow, it's kind of late to be getting an MRI, isn't it? You know what? For certain tests, I guess they do it all time of day and night. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then I go back on the 11th for one on my brain. What was this MRI on? On my pelvis. Oh, okay. How you feeling? I'm feeling okay now. There's your daddy. He got the car already. Hi, Dad! I can't hear you because I'm still walking towards the car. Oh, you're walking. Walking and talking? Can you chew gum? No. Okay. I can't do three things like that. How are you doing? Annie Hoy is on the show today. She works at the Ashland Food Co-op, and she thinks you're adorable, and you <laughs> remind her of her mother-in-law who passed. She's a little old lady. Well, I guess a little old dead lady who's not here anymore. Oh. She thinks that you're cute, which you'll hear in the show if you listen to the show. Yeah. You're still staying off of all those things you had planned or not? Yep. One week, I have not gone back on any of those things. Yep. Not even marijuana? Nope. Did I tell you about the great shop I found? Oh, you mean where you got your, your CBD oil? And cream. Yeah. You know where it's located? No. It was so funny. I told you, Emily and Beverly at the birthday party tried my stuff and they're like, you know, like gagging. And then she tried my turmeric and she got, well, she went to her doctor and she got a prescription for CBD. Yeah. But she got it in a pill form. You yeah. Know? But she went online to check where all the dispensaries are, and there were like 50 or 500 or whatever in Canoga Park. Yeah. And she just thought with that many, maybe it's just like a doper area or whatever. A doper you know? area? I mean, where people are selling drugs? <laughs> I don't know about using it or whatever. So she went to Santa Monica and La Cienega. And I said, wow, that's a long haul, you know. Is she in the valley? Yeah, she was even further. She was in a car. Oh, my God. She drove all the way to the city? <laughs> yeah, to get it because she didn't want to go to uh, Canoga Park. Right. So anyhow, so when I spoke to her afterwards, she says, there's one near you, she says, next to Carl Jr. That's two blocks away. So when I was taking care of all of some other business, Kaiser, shoes, whatever, I went there. And they said, ID, and I said, oh, I don't have a license. No, do you have ID? And I said, yeah, my driver's license. That's all I needed. Well, they only deal in cash. Yeah, it's still a cash business. So you bought some CBD cream? Is that what you got? Yeah, I bought, well, no, I don't know if it's CBD cream, but I got cream for my pain, my hip and my back, and I got 
one of those little squirt bottles. You mean a spray bottle? No, no, the kind you drop. Oh, you mean a, a dropper, an eyedropper bottle? Yeah, yeah, right. But I drop it in my mouth. Yeah. Have you been using it? Yeah, I think I don't remember yesterday. What was it? Oh, yesterday we went to Donna's memorial. Oh, right. That yesterday was the twenty eighth. Yeah. yeah. How was the yeah. memorial service? Very nice. Very nice. Debbie did a great job on the DVD in oh, memory of oh, Donna. Yeah, she made a presentation Family, DVD. Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful. And you're even in one of the pictures with Uncle Stanley, I think. Oh. She had everybody in there, you know. Anyhow, it was very nice. It was just, and everybody asked about you, you know, but just difficult for them all. I, you know, but Donna was something else. In spite of everything that was wrong with her, I know, like even for the Hanukkah party, even Ryan was saying, you know, her mother was a cooking and even sick as she was, she would leave Vegas in like 10 minutes and come back out here, you know. So it was very nice. But I'm sure she's in a far better place, you know. She has not taken her sick body with her. Right. And Nikki is going through awful stuff. She's back in the hospital again. Oh, I thought she was doing better. I thought so, too. She got another virus. So she went back to the hospital, not rehab, and she can't talk on the phone because she's got something on her face where she could leave. Sorry to hear that. And I think Sherry is semi-like that. Sherry Ely? Yeah. Are you in the car now? Yeah, we're going home now, finally. Okay. Hi, Dad. Mark says, hi, Dad. So how many days now have you taken the CBD that you got from this new place? Well, I have a couple of days. All right. Did you go from taking the stuff that you had before straight into that? Almost. I missed a day or two or something. So have you noticed anything at all? You said that you you were noticing something with your sleep at least. Yeah, but last night was terrible. And then I had tried to kill. I got from the doctor and then I read what it could do to you. (laughs) I took a half of the pill. There's maximum you could take a three. Start out with half. I mean, I took a half and a two in the morning and something else, and my head was just all over the place. I don't like that. That doesn't make me feel good. Yeah. So I'm not using that pill. I won't use it. Yeah. I'll just go with a CBD. You know, you can't over-CBD yourself, just so you know that. I'm glad you said that. I think it's almost impossible for you to overdose on CBD oil. If I do, you kill them, but they How much money do I have waiting for me? That's the really important question here. Well, you don't get to go after your dad. So. Give him some, too. <laughs> <laughs> Tell him it's candy. Tell him it's candy? My son is trying to call through. Let me call you back, Mom. Okay, I love you. We're just about home. Okay, love you.